0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. You've heard the slogan, Hartford, the insurance capital of the world. Recently, insurance giant Aetna announced it's moving its headquarters to New York City, after a nearly 200-year history in the capital city. Now, will other insurers follow? That's a question some politicians have asked, but we wanted to know more about how Hartford and Connecticut became known as the insurance capital of the world. How many companies are rooted here? How many state residents rely on these insurers for employment? Coming up, we'll look into how the industry has evolved from insuring ships to weighing the increased risk of natural disasters caused by climate change. Officials from Travelers and Hartford Steam Boiler will, will join us later to talk about where they see growth in the industry and what they're looking for in the future workforce. How do you view the insurance industry? Do you think insurers are doing a good job responding to your needs? You can join the conversation this hour, 860 275 7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. As always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Before we get to your calls and hear from local insurance companies, we wanted to step back in time with author Richard Rudolph. Rudolph, He's author of the book, with a fitting title, A Tedious Brief History of Insurance. We only have 49 minutes. Your book seemed like a perfect fit. Richard, welcome to the show.
2: Welcome. I, I'm, thank you very much, Lucy.
0: I guess we should define insurance. Exactly what is insurance?
2: Well, there are a number of definitions. Uh, I, the one I like is uh, it's a social mechanism by which we manage uh, various risks. By social mechanism, it, it suggests that people come together and pool resources, pool their efforts to manage the risks of each other. Uh, that seems to be, to me, the broadest, uh, without getting into uh, technical uh, issues or te- technicalities that... Uh, you know, would kind of bog it down and, and make it tedious and mm-hmm. certainly not brief.
0: I mentioned you're the author of this book, but you're also a historian and former risk management consultant. And in your book, you write, "It's not insurance is not something that an average person wants to think about, much less read. So why does the industry have this reputation of being so unappealing?
2: Well, part of it, I think, is that we only we don't look at our insurance policies uh, sitting on a mantle and say, "Wow, look at this! I bought this." We'd rather look at a, a widescreen TV or something, because when we need that insurance policy, something bad has happened, and we tend to not, you know, we don't like looking at bad stuff. So we don't we avoid thinking about insurance until we've had a car accident or we're in the hospital or something like that. It's, it's just not a pleasant thing to consider but it's necessary so we all have it but it's not something we uh, we don't brag to our neighbors mm.
0: Now, there are negative perceptions too because we all hear about uh, either our personal or someone we know's experience when we file a claim, and sometimes uh, the back and forth that goes on with insurance companies. Uh, you know, and consumers always feel like uh, they should be getting as much as they can in terms of uh, recoupment of having to pay for damages. That doesn't always happen, so that does impact impression of insurance companies too.
2: It certainly does. Uh, I've been married to my first wife for 50 years. And we almost got a divorce once because she thought that she should file a claim twice for different causes of damage uh, without repairing it the first time. So she took the first money and said, Oh, it's those little burns on the floor aren't so bad. And then when another burn happened, she said, Well, let's file the claim and get more money. And I said, No, just. Um, There is that perception that I need to get my money back. I've invested all this money. I want my money. And that's not the purpose of it. It is to take care of those unexpected and painful things that happen uh, and, and get us back. That's the essence of sharing risk. Those that don't have loss help those who do.
0: And when you file the the multiple claims, the insurance company sees you as a risk. They can even choose not to renew your your policy.
2: Well, that, and if it's egregious enough, uh, you get to uh, change your pinstripe suit to one with vertical, (laughs) or from vertical to horizontal stripes.
0: So let's talk about the early beginnings of insurance. Your book goes pretty far back. Tell us about uh, this concept and where we see it uh, first.
2: Well, it's difficult to to prove what I believe are the first origins of it, but it's uh, that social mechanism is a matter of us clustering together. As humans, we tend to not live an isolationist uh, existence. We form family units, tribal units, societies, all that, for collectivization, uh, mutual benefit, and all that. But some of the very earliest evidences of what we recognize as modern insurance concepts or uh, legal concepts uh, can go back to uh, Hammurabi and the, uh, the famous uh, laws of Babylonia that were written millions—or not—not millions, thousands of years ago, where he establishes the idea of annuities that. The children take care of their elder parents through a through a mechanism of some sort. Establishes liability for injury. Uh, if you kill someone's oxen, you have to pay something. Uh, it shows up in the Old Testament in uh, a phrase dealing with uh, if you fail to put a parapet on your on your building and someone falls off the roof, you incur blood guilt. So you're responsible for that person. Uh, you know we're talking about. Thousands of years ago, these concepts uh, kind of floating around. But the, the first kind of modern uh, use of insurance that we would recognize grew out of the practice of uh, Phoenician, Roman, and Greek shippers that they agreed to insure, if you will, each other's vessels and cargoes through contracts. Where they actually had written documents uh, respondentia bonds covered the cargo and bottomry contracts covered the vessels so if a shipper lost uh, one of his uh, one of the voyages uh, ended in disaster his fellow shippers uh, reimbursed him for his losses and we've got written evidence of those things existing and uh, it just evolved over the years it became more and more refined until the one that we seem to focus on and say, oh, this is the first uh, is Lloyd's of London and the London underwriters. Mm-hmm. It really wasn't the first, but it's the one that we, uh, we have the most information about because it's fairly recent. It's only five or 600 years ago that we were doing that.
0: So, with the development of trade, we saw this more advanced form of insurance to uh, protect the entire vessel and cargo. What about back in, in ancient Egypt, there you write about the Egyptian burial societies? Tell us about that? Well,
2: some of the some of the uh, practices that we recognise now as say uh, life insurance uh, did come out of uh, Egyptian uh, burial societies. The uh, Romans had a similar mechanism called the Collegium. That provided for the burial of uh, soldiers who were killed in um, in the service of the empire. And it, they were very much like our current idea of life insurance, but they didn't yet use actuarial science for a more accurate prediction of the costs. It was more uh, a pay-as-you-go plan. You uh, contributed in, and um, hopefully there was enough in the... Uh, treasury to pay those expenses when the person passed away. The uh, burial society was kind of unique because the focus there was to provide uh, a proper burial place uh, in keeping with the the uh, general Egyptian belief in uh, immortality. That's the reason for the pyramids and the mummies and all that
0: this idea of providing funds for these rituals like embalming, entombment, uh, to guarantee this journey to, to the land of the dead and eternal afterlife.
2: Yes, and you didn't even have to, um, you had to belong to a burial society. Uh, one was uh, established for uh, stonemasons, uh, kind of like what we would now say, well there's a, a group, a uh, professional association that provides benefits. But you didn't have to be in the profession, and we've got written evidence of uh, just some ordinary people joining this uh, uh, stonemason society for the purposes of practicing uh, or participating in their uh, burial society benefits.
0: This is where we live. Uh, joining us from WXEL Studios in Boynton Beach, Florida, is Richard Rudolph. He's the author of A Tedious Brief History of Insurance, also a former risk management consultant. Today we're talking about insurance, of course, because of Hartford and Connecticut's connection to the insurance industry. We wanted a little bit learn a little bit more about its past, which is why we have Richard on. And later on in the show, we're going to talk about uh, the future, how this industry is evolving. Uh, but you mentioned, uh, Richard, some examples of uh, insurance uh, through Through uh, the ancient times to today but as we move closer to the United States you write about um, early fire insurance mechanisms and and, uh, can talk a little bit about that.
2: The first evidence we have of a a sort of a fire insurance policy that we would say yes that's clearly fire insurance policy uh, came out of the Great Fire of London in 1666 that prior to that uh, there simply was no mechanism for paying uh, paying a homeowner if they lost their building, and some ship owners uh, and underwriters at the various syndicates in the uh, ship uh, in the shipping uh, insurance market in London said, "Well, why don't we just take what we've learned in writing vessels and apply to the same thing to a building?" They uh, they don't have the same exposure as to perils of the sea. Uh, They can blow down, they can burn, but we should be able to make some money off doing that. And they started doing that. Uh, Related to that was some early concepts of urban planning and safety, because the streets in London at the time were very narrow. And buildings extended out over the streets, which caused a spread of fire very easily. One thatched roof caught, it was easy to leap across the street to another. So there were some improvements in zoning that said you can't extend the building beyond its footprint. And that uh, was a change in the way government approached uh, urban planning uh, to make the uh, city life safer and because this was all happening in England it was natural that it it followed commerce over to the americas uh, and we started seeing the same kind of ideas popping up in at the time in the colonies and then after we gained our independence of course we continued that same uh, same uh, mechanism
0: now when we talk about uh, the americas and marine insurance you write about um how Uh, Insurance was used also uh, to insure cargoes of slaves. Uh, The Mr. McCargo's cargo. Can you talk about that?
2: Sure. Uh, This was an interesting little thing. Uh, And I guess I have kind of a perverse sense of humor that someone named McCargo was insuring his cargo. uh, Sort of like we talk about some restaurants of having a character. So... uh, Mr. McCargo sought to insure his slaves which in 1833 were considered his property and his chattels and he loaded up uh, his vessel with 29 slaves on the uh, in virginia and was headed to a slave market in new orleans and in the course of the journey uh, there were some uh, unfortunate incidences on the vessel probably involving crime, Uh, and the slaves insurrected. Uh, They captured the weapons of the crew, their knives, and uh, took over the ship, sailed to uh, Bermuda, went into the port, but before they went into the port, they very uh, uh, cleverly threw all of the muskets overboard and then returned all the knives to the galley of the ship, and a few to the uh, crew, and uh, just simply sailed in, and the British commander said, uh, well, welcome, you are, uh, you know, this is a British colony, and you're under our protection now, and uh, you're free, and naturally, uh, the ship owners disagreed, saying, no, this is, uh, the ship follows the laws of the, its uh, land, not of a foreign nation, and An argument ensued over, did the British have the right to free the slaves? When the ship left, all of the slaves but one stayed in Bermuda as free men. So when the ship landed in New Orleans, Mr. McCargo filed an insurance claim for $800 times the 28 slaves that uh, left the vessel. And the insurance company refused to pay, citing the clause in the insurance policy that said uh, there was no coverage for losses caused by insurrection or rebellion. And then the battle started over, was it an insurrection or was it a theft by the British? The court in New Orleans um, sided with Mr. McCargo, and perhaps there was still some lingering animosity over the British on what they had done um, in the battle of, um, in the war of 1812. But nonetheless, the court decided that Mr. McCargo should be paid. The insurance company appealed. The appeal was um, not successful, so that was upheld. And then, then pops up a, really an interesting person named Judah Philip Benjamin, a legal scholar, a lawyer in America and a British barrister and he had dual citizenship of uh, being British and American. He was the senator from Louisiana. Uh, and he was also a slave owner. He had owned a sugar plantation, but he did uh, release his slaves. He was brought in to write an Amicus uh, for the benefit of the court and went into a, a rather deep philosophical argument quoting Justinian uh, the Roman emperor about uh, slavery being against natural law and if a person were held in a intolerable condition as a person as a human being they had the right to uh, rebel and insurrect against those outrageous conditions and The uh, Supreme Court uh, found in favor now of the insurance carrier and reversed the decision. Uh, Then along comes the Civil War, and uh, Benjamin leaves the U.S. Senate and becomes the Secretary of War for the Confederate States, which is kind of interesting. Mm.
0: Uh, So this is just one of many stories that you've traced in your book, uh, Richard, A Tedious Brief History of Insurance. Uh, Before we head to break, I should mention that you're someone who actually – Uh, majored in insurance, and you write in your book that often the people who are working in insurance happen to get into this job, uh, not through uh, a major. Uh, How did you get interested in insurance?
2: Well, my mom worked in an insurance agency in my little hometown, and her boss was my scoutmaster. But that had nothing to do with it. When I was in college getting a major in accounting, as I was a junior, I thought, I really don't want to do this accounting stuff. Uh, it to me just wasn't very exciting and I switched to finance, took some insurance courses, started a doctorate and um, that was it. it. Just I found it much more fascinating to study insurance than accounting.
0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, with us today, Richard Rudolph, author again of the book A Tedious Brief History of Insurance. Uh, Hartford's been long been called the insurance capital of the world. That's why we're talking about insurance today with Richard, a former risk management consultant. He'll stay with us as we talk more about the future of insurance in Connecticut. Coming up after the break, Susan Winkler will join us. She's Vice President and Executive Director of Connecticut Insurance and Financial Services. She'll tell us more about whether Hartford is still the insurance capital of the world and with changes in Technology, what are insurers looking for in its future workforce? Join the conversation, 860 275 7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As author Richard Rudolph puts it, when you think about insurance, either something bad is happening, something bad will happen, or something bad has happened. But in Connecticut, when elected officials think about insurance, they think about an important economic driver employing thousands and giving us that catchy slogan, the insurance capital of the world. Is it better to say insurance capital of the nation? To help us better understand, we're joined now in studio by Susan Winkler, Vice President and Executive Director of Connecticut Insurance and Financial Services. Susan, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you for having me. For those people who have yet to hear about your organization, tell us about who your members are. Uh, Certainly. And thank you again for for allowing me to speak today. Uh, The Connecticut Insurance and Financial Services is an organization of 32 insurance financial services companies, and we coalesce around a variety of different focus areas um, but one is workforce development. That's one of our key uh, focus areas, and, and what we do is to try to drive the workforce of the future into the insurance industry, and of course, we're always touting the insurance capital banner uh, everywhere we go. Are we the insurance capital of the I'm world? I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> You're so used to this
0: question, right? I am
3: used to it. Everywhere I talk, I try to see if I can get some ambassadors, so I hope some of your listeners could be my ambassadors today, but uh, in fact, you asked earlier: Are we the insurance capital of the U.S. or of the world? I like to say of the world, but my data is of of touts and substantiates that uh, in the U.S. We do rank number one in insurance employment per capita, so we have the most insurance jobs in the country in Connecticut, and that, that's a pretty uh, recent rank. Uh, so I'm pleased to say we are. We also rank number one in the highest concentration of actuaries. That's a very important occupation in the industry. And we also have some other rankings, which I can go on, but I I don't want to bore all the listeners. I just want them to understand that the most important ranking is that we do have the most insured jobs here in Connecticut. Give us an idea of how many jobs we're talking about. Uh, Over 60,000 or close to 60,000. My numbers are just fresh, uh, and we we fluctuate around that 60,000 number each year. If you add financial services to the equation in Connecticut, we're over 110,000.
0: We often hear about uh, the big insurance companies like Aetna, especially when they say they're moving their headquarters to New York City. Uh, But give us an idea of how varied the insurance uh, market is here in the state of Connecticut.
3: Well, you, you, you understand that we always have the large brands, and they're very, very important companies here in Connecticut, those that represent property casualty, life retirement, and health. So we have the the names that that are well-recognized and are loyal brands in the industry, but then we have uh, smaller companies that are, maybe they're domesticated or they're headquartered somewhere else, but they still have a presence here in Connecticut. So we have that group uh, in Connecticut, as well as the startups or those companies that are servicing the industry. So technology companies, law firms, uh, marketing firms, et cetera, really with a client base of insurers so we have a supply chain as well in Connecticut.
0: Uh, we, we hear uh, certain uh, insurance officials talking about the importance of innovation, which might be why we know why. The Aetna says they're moving their headquarters uh, to New York City. But talk about how uh, the advances in technology is really changing the insurance industry.
3: And where do you see that change happening? Well, you know, a lot of the insurance companies uh, define themselves as technology companies that happen to sell insurance. I'm sure you've heard that. And... Uh, that is essentially what the basis of these companies are. They are creating we, – we're in a connected world. The new economy is such that uh, everything is technology-based. And as a result of that, you would imagine your insurance products are also the same. So that is where the future of insurance is, whether it's a virtual dock or you're taking an Uber or Lyft uh, ride uh, or your your house is a smart house or your smartphone. Everything, because it's so connected and technology-based – the insurance companies had to evolve to that that practice. They've been doing that for, let's say, the last 10 years, but really on a higher threshold uh, every single day because they have to keep up. So sometimes they're ahead of the curve and they're investing in the technologies that can get in advance of those demands, consumer demands, and trying to keep consumers healthy and and protected or they're they're behind the curve trying to catch up. It, it just depends on, on what's happening in the, in the world today. You, you mentioned the importance of
0: actuaries, uh, Susan, but when we look at uh, technology advancing and um, uh, products that startups are uh, developing, uh, any threats to the insurance industry and how they do business?
3: Uh, well, there's always threats in every business, I suppose. Uh, I, I think the, the most important thing about Connecticut is that you have that highly skilled labor that's trying to get ahead of the curve so, as I said earlier, whether they're following or leading the charge, there's a lot of disruptors out there. And Connecticut's insurance industry is really poised to get ahead of that, or they're leading the charge on how to, to manage that disruptor and, again, bring those products to the consumers to the best they can. That's that's the beauty of the Connecticut market and the Connecticut labor market. So, I know we talked a little bit about Aetna moving. The, the employee base is still here. So... Um, and that, that is representative of all of the companies in Connecticut. So they're, they're here and they're managing all of that. And we're lucky in Connecticut because we have that, uh, that baseline of, of talent, of highly skilled and, and, and employee base, not only here, but we have the academic partners that are helping us build it for the future.
0: This is where we live. Today we're talking about uh, the insurance industry because it plays a big role in Connecticut's economy. Uh, with us in studio, Susan Winkler, Vice President and Executive Director of Connecticut Insurance and Financial Services. Also with us from WXEL Studios in Boynton Beach, Florida, Richard Rudolph, author of A Tedious Brief History of Insurance. Uh, you mentioned, Susan, that uh, companies here are, are um, able to meet on the disruptors, are really looking and investing in these new technologies. Can you give us some more specific of the examples? Well, I, a lot of the companies
3: are also, there's a new buzzword out there called InsurTech, and uh, that is a, it was you know, some people call it a phenomenon, but it's really more of a business practice now that's becoming readily available in the industry. And that's where companies are looking ahead to help uh, if they can't solve themselves for these really changing technologies or disruptors in the marketplace, and I use that word loosely, Um they are hiring uh, startup companies and investing in startups to say, hey, we need the answer to this real quickly. And we know that there's some really good talent out there developing these cool items or products or efficiencies, help us get there. And this insure tech is growing. Uh, As a matter of fact, it'll be growing in Connecticut soon too. um, And companies are investing in there. So this is going to be really great for the insurance capital. But to answer your question, uh, that is one tool or one way that the companies are moving ahead and evolving, is, is really looking at technology and, in this case, the tech model as a way to um, advance the industry and build employment. Now you
0: I know you uh, review the kind of skills that these insurance companies are looking for each quarter as part of your job. How have you how are you seeing that change and when we look at the workforce of these insurance companies here in Connecticut, who are they?
3: Yeah well you know what uh, I think we're trying to break the mold of who we were because you know one of the hardest hardest um, let's see uh, uh, roles I have is to, Make insurance uh, sexy for the next generation. <laughs> Good luck to, to yeah to have the uh, young people saying, you know what, I'm am going from uh, through uh, school to to work in the insurance industry some day. We don't want that to be a default, you know, and we want that to be a choice. And uh, one of the things that the IFS does is work with academic partners to to uh, showcase just what's inside insurance today. So it makes it. A career choice that's challenging. Everything that I just talked about today um, about the new, the new economy and how that is actually part of the insurance business practice, so that we can get the young people more interested in this as a career choice. And then, you know, even on the local market, just talking about Connecticut, um, the companies are. Um, heavily involved in High School Inc so High School Inc is a uh, Hartford public school that's just dedicated to insurance and financial services for four years they they learned through their their curricula uh, the importance of insurance and the practice in internships, job shadow days, executive lunches, mentorships I mean it is the full body of of everything to try to encourage, at least one high school body of students to 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 work in the industry someday in the future. I want to go back to
0: our uh, guest, Richard Rudolph. Uh, we we just heard Susan say that you know trying to make the uh, insurance industry sound sexy to attract uh, a young people into the workforce. Uh, how do you uh, how do you recommend doing that, Richard? Well, I
2: think Susan's on the right track with with engaging the high school students. Uh, it's it's difficult to say, well, you know, reading a policy is exciting. But the real magic is when you work on things and you realize that you can help businesses and help individuals solve problems and and improve what they're doing, improve their lives. And I think that if we can make that connection with young people, that it isn't just a job, it's really something where you benefit others, uh, then... You know that may well attract these uh, the young people. I I know millennials are interested in volunteerism, and while we're not suggesting they be volunteer insurance people, it's that same kind of idea of serving others. Mm-hmm. So insurance can do that.
0: It definitely can do that, but I know we'd spoken earlier, Richard, about the perceptions of insurance companies. Uh, this, especially when we look at how health insurance is front and center in the debate, um, the perception uh, that you know insurance companies, um, people who work for insurance companies, are making money, uh, and the people that need insurance aren't always getting the coverage that they deserve.
2: Well, I think what we're seeing is is an argument over uh, the cost of insurance as being health care. And health care is the providing of medical services. That's a different issue than the financing mechanism of how do I pay for it. When In risk management, we talk about identifying exposures. Uh, in this case, I have a exposure to a, a illness that requires medical care. Then we analyze it and figure out, well, how, how bad is it? Why will it hurt? Uh, we can try to control it through health programs, uh, taking better care of ourselves, all that. But then the fourth mechanism in insurance is where do we get the money? Uh, and I said uh, insurance, I mean, uh, sorry, in risk management. is Where do we get the money? We get the money from our own pockets. In risk management terms, that's retention. Or we get the money from someone else. And in most cases, that's an insurance company. It comes out of our pocket in the form of premium. But the uh, that's the only two sources of, of money. It comes out of insurance or it comes somewhere else out of our own pockets. With the current debate, there is the question about, well, perhaps it should come out of the government. Well, that's going to come out of our pockets in the form of taxes. It's... Uh, but it is two separate issues, and I don't think we're really addressing cost of insurance for health care and cost of health care. It's the same argument about is the cost of fire insurance or the cost of the fire. Two different, two different things.
0: And Richard, as we look at that debate in Washington, efforts to repeal and replace Obamacare, I mean, how do you see insurance company, health insurance companies uh, possibly trying to influence this debate, when, especially nowadays with single-payer system uh, coming to the front?
2: Well, I try to stay away from politics. I'm a, an economist by training, uh, a finance person by training. And to me, I focus on dollars and cents. Um, it's something costs money, we need money to, to pay for it. And how we get it? Well, there's a couple of ways. But it's a, it's a difficult problem, and there is no single solution. I do recall, though, from my, my research, um, health insurance, as we sort of recognize it now, is fairly new. It was an outgrowth of accident insurance that uh, began in 1863, and by the turn of the century the health insurance oh, sorry the uh, accident insurance companies looked for new revenue and they started issuing contracts that said well we'll add on these health benefits people didn't buy them because you had to have a medical exam it was step rated there were pre-existing conditions and uh, these are the kinds of things that I, I hear people now being concerned about uh, we went through that uh, in a turn of the century, the insurance companies removed those things and people started buying individual health insurance. Now that same idea is back on the table as an issue. Step rating, pre-existing condition, and waiting periods. So Where history repeats itself, the problem is we don't often read history and think about it so we know what we did in the past and then look to improve it.
0: Uh, Richard, part of uh, uh, today's show we wanted to look at uh, the future of the insurance industry. What are some types of insurance that exist today that we may not have seen 10, 20 years ago?
2: Well, uh, right now the the big issue is uh, cyber. Uh, That's something that everyone in the industry seems to be wrestling with. How do we insure it? Can we insure it? Uh, How do we use loss control to try to prevent it or minimize its impact? It's too new for us to have, a, a, I think, a cohesive approach, but we'll get there. We had the same issue, like I mentioned, on the fire insurance. We, mm-hmm. we didn't know exactly how to do that, but we started taking baby steps through changing the way we built buildings and zoning, and we figured out a way to make it fairly safe. Uh, Benjamin Franklin figured out a way to make Uh, fire department's work, but he wasn't the first. He just improved upon what the Romans did. So if we keep learning about what we did in the past and keep thinking about it, then uh, perhaps we can get to that point where uh, we can uh, make a difference. Uh, There's all sorts of avenues that insurance can go to. Uh, As soon as we find a need that enough people have, uh, the industry will figure out a way to uh, address it, you know, have a policy, and away we go.
0: Susan Winkler, can you add to that uh, the types of insurance products that we see companies here uh, developing because of uh, uh, new threats like uh, cyber
3: attacks? Uh, Richard's absolutely right. I mean, cyber is one of those new products that uh, that, that it takes an enormous amount of uh, energy and commitment of the companies to keep looking at uh, uh, Internet of Everything, the Internet of Things, as it's called. IOT, you know everything you have a smart home well what does that mean? It's great but how do you ensure the risk of a smart home uh, if something should fail and it's not f- how are you insured as a result of that? So I think particularly uh, terrorism again uh, and the threat of and the threat of uh, and how is that uh, looked upon as a risk? And, and where does it go? And then, of course, beyond that, just in the health arena, obesity and all those things that go along with, with our health crises and opiate crises, you know, where is the insurance companies? How do they help on that? And that's, they spend an enormous amount of time and and, and employee effort in trying to to determine how to get ahead of those, what we could consider either epidemics or crises,
0: And what about climate change? As <laughs> you see,
3: an heightened risk of natural disasters.
0: How do insurance yeah. companies weigh the risk?
3: Well, they, they weigh it in a number of different ways. They're continually studying it through uh, whether they hire the scientists or they invest in those uh, scientific experiments to try to determine you know, what's happening. Uh, obviously, the actuaries have their own models that they continue to, to uh, develop as it relates to the property casualty industry, but you know, also interesting uh, is the new uh, genetic medicine and the study of genome. Re- in the study, I should say the the study of genome research or genome research and uh, preventative medicines and so forth. So the you would think that the health insurers are looking at this, but so is the life insurers. So you know, are there uh, ways to look at those particular advancements in medicine and science? To help again, uh, create the the best possible products for consumer protections in the industry. So there are there are things that, um, and you need experts in those industries to answer your question on climate change. So they are investing heavily, and I I couldn't give you the number, but let's just say it's millions and millions of dollars in climate research to help get ahead of the curve of how is the impacts uh, of climate change affecting, let's say, the cocoa crop. Uh, somewhere the cocoa beans, which are ultimately uh, going to make candy bars, which are ultimately going to be uh, insured by a company that makes candy bars, and how do you and the supply chain go along with it? So that's kind of a, a, an example of how something so large. I, I, you know, everybody says climate change; it's so broad-based that you don't know where to think. And I'm trying to give an example of of just what climate change means to insure in the most specific way, and that would be the study of the rainforests and so forth, and the study of the development of uh, those cocoa beans and how that is affected a company that makes chocolate bars and the supply chain of that and the growers and et cetera. So all of that has to be studied. all of that has to be um, looked upon as an insurance, not only product to protect, but also to help mitigate the risk. For that, and what about uh, just risks along uh, the U.S. coast uh, with
0: the hurricane season, Mm -hmm. uh, with property damage, along with sea level rise? uh, You know what happens to uh, um, homeowners, say in Florida and other places, when their premiums continue to grow?
3: Well, the insurance companies um, are also uh, there. Is first of all, the insurance companies are regulated. Each uh, state is regulated by an insurance regulator. I will put a shout out to our. Uh, Department of Insurance here and Commissioner uh, Catherine Wade. uh, We have one of the uh, most uh, highly regarded insurance regulators in the country, Uh, simply not only because of our historical background, we've been here for a long time doing this, but um, we have a group of highly trained uh, and skilled employees in the department. But to your question, um, they are working alongside the insurance industry to help determine what is the best practices to help homeowners uh, prepare for those incidents. So if there's a grand hurricane season, uh, the insurance industry is studying that, the regulators are putting in regulations, uh, and both those two are helping consumers based on the fact of their research. In making sure they're ready for those climate changes,
0: and it's a tricky—it's a tricky matter, uh, especially along Connecticut's coast. This idea yes. that um, places that are battered by natural disasters more and more often it doesn't make sense to be
3: rebuilding in these same spaces. Yeah, well, that would be the—you know—the the real decision. Of course, the homeowners love the shoreline. That's one of our beautiful assets in the state of Connecticut. Is that we have this beautiful shoreline, but there are shorelines all up and down the eastern coast, and uh, it is really, I guess, incumbent again. Um, for the insurance industries and the homeowners and the regulators to work together to make sure that everybody has the best possible outcomes. Because you can't predict the weather, you can do the best you can, but as we know, it's not a a foolproof science. Um, But to have the protections in place is really the most important thing. And that's what the insurance companies strive to do, along with their partners. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucien Alpathanchel. With us today, Susan
0: Winkler, Vice President and Executive Director of Connecticut Insurance and Financial Services. Also from WXEL Studios, rather in Boynton Beach, Florida, Richard Rudolph, author of A Tedious Brief History of Insurance. Coming up, we continue to talk about the insurance industry and its future with two insurers in Connecticut, Travelers and Hartford Steam Boiler. And you can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today, we've been talking about the insurance industry and insurers here in Connecticut. Two companies that employ many state residents are joining our conversation now Patrick Gee, Senior Vice President of Claims at Travelers Insurance, and Stephanie Watkins, Senior Vice President at Hartford Steam Boiler. Patrick and Stephanie, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks, Lucy. Good morning. I'll start with you, Patrick, at Travelers. Uh, We know that uh, the company, I think, employs about 7,000 people in the the capital city. You focus on emerging technologies. Tell us about um, some of the examples of that and how you're seeing uh, your products changing.
1: Well, yes. uh, In recent years, we've really been able to leverage a lot of the new technologies that are available in the marketplace in terms of how we respond to our customers. So, for instance, just speaking from the perspective of when things happen to people and and we're trying to help our customers recover from the unexpected, let's say, damage to their home or property, we now have a lot of new tools in place. Uh, Let's say you have a hailstorm somewhere around the country. We essentially know, minutes after the hail has fallen, how large it is, where it's fallen, and we're able to figure out how we can ensure we get the right resources to the right place at the right time using some of these new geospatial tools. We can even, in many instances, um, since we have access to all this imagery, for instance, you remember the Fort McMurray fires recently in Canada? We were able to actually build out the structure of our customers' homes. Uh, before, we are actually able to uh, visually inspect the properties in person uh, due to a lot of the satellite and other imagery that's available to us to, again, help, these, help make payments more quickly and, and really move the process along. And even some of the things we use commonly, like social media, we can actually recreate a tornado footprint from the images that people upload to social media often before we have access to the area, uh, et cetera. So it's pretty interesting how you can use some of these new tools and things we use commonly uh, to help respond more quickly. And some of the things we use every day, like our smartphones, you know, we used to have to carry separate equipment to measure distance and record audio and video and images, measure the slope of roofs, things like that. And we can do all that with apps essentially on our smartphone today, uh, including flying uh, our drone fleet, which helps us uh, very safely inspect properties and uh, and really move the claim process along.
0: And that was my next question, talking about uh, your use of drones at Travelers. Um, you've been doing this now for how long and what has been the reception uh, from consumers as well as, as uh, your employees? Any worry about uh, the fact that you can use drones to do this kind of review? Does that impact uh, the number of workforce for you?
1: Uh, I would say it makes us more efficient and effective. Our, our current expert workforce um, that knows how to scope damage that might happen to someone's home or business, et cetera. But for instance, for drones, uh, we're told we may be the largest user of drones across any company in the United States, actually. We didn't set out with that as a goal, but they've been proven to be so effective. About a year ago, the FAA changed their regulations. You know, you used to have to have a real pilot that flew airplanes in the sky. You needed an extra observer, you needed to let everyone within 500 feet know of your flight. So it wasn't really effective until they put these new small drone guidelines in place last August. And so since then, we have thousands of flights that we've made over our customers' properties. I would say 99% of the time, um, the customers are really excited to have us you know, fly the drones over their properties, and if it's something they would prefer, we don't do. That's fine, but what it's really done is made the whole process much quicker. Because oftentimes, in a steep or complex roof type situation, think of all the exterior damage that happens happens to properties around the country. We would actually have to. Um, bring in outside experts that had special equipment to help assess the damage, but now we don't have to set up a separate inspection. We can do it the first time we arrive at a customer's property. That really facilitates moving the claim process along and allows us to make payment more quickly. Also, uh, it's a safer environment because regardless of how well-trained you are around roofs or ladders, obviously, uh, Mm -hmm. it's a lot safer if you don't have to climb a ladder and and get up on a roof. So (laughs) We have hundreds of people trained at this point in time, and they're really uh, proving to be very effective.
0: I wanted to bring Stephanie into the conversation. Stephanie Watkins, again, Senior Vice President at Hartford Steam Boiler. Uh, Stephanie, for those people who don't haven't heard about your company, tell us quickly uh, what kind of insurance uh, you specialize in, and how are you changing up uh, what your products are based on new technology?
4: Well, um, Hartford Steam Boiler, as H- most people call us HSB, we're a technology-forward specialty insurer, and we really invent new coverages and service solutions to, in response to advances in technology. So while we're called Hartford Steam Boiler, it's really uh, quite a misnomer. It goes back to when we were founded over 150 years ago. But now we insure newer types of technology risks, such as cyber risk and renewable energy. In terms of what we're doing with technology in the future, and in addition to using new technology to help with the claims process, as Patrick was discussing, we're also looking and using technology to um, prevent and reduce risk in the very first instance. So one example is that HSB recently created a new service that uses the Internet of Things and remote sensor monitoring to help our small and medium-sized customers prevent property damage and business interruption in the first instance. So It really gives our customers a virtual presence 24-7 on the ground, at their businesses, and HSB alerts them via text or um, apps about problems or issues in their business, and this helps them prevent losses, but also helps them run their businesses more efficiently because they can monitor things like um, increases in energy usage, for example.
0: Now, Stephanie, we've just got a couple of minutes, but I wanted to ask you specifically when you're looking at your future workforce, what kind of skills are you looking for?
4: Yeah, the workforce of our future is, is going to be very different, obviously, than it was um, just a, a very few years ago. So a few years ago, we wouldn't have been hiring uh, cyber insurance experts or white hat hackers. We wouldn't be looking for um, data scientists. But today, um, people that are digital natives, that are steeped in technology, data science uh, scientists, uh, and technology experts are absolutely key um, to our business moving forward.
0: And when you talk about these skills, these are skills you're finding from our Connecticut universities?
4: Connecticut universities, all over Connecticut. I think we're in a very good place in Connecticut with lots of tremendous um, educational institutions on which we can draw. I think as an as a industry, the insurance industry has to do a better job of selling themselves and, and letting especially um, new and young professionals in our marketplace know that insurance is a very exciting, dynamic, and technically driven world.
0: Well, I want to thank Stephanie Watkins, Senior Vice President at Hartford Steam Boiler for joining us. Stephanie, thank you for your time today. Thank you very much. Also, Patrick Gee, Senior Vice President of Claims at Travelers Insurance. Patrick, thank you.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Now, uh, Susan Winkler, again, uh, in studio with us, Vice President and Executive Director of Connecticut Insurance and Financial Services. I know each uh, fall you have a big summit uh, where you're looking at uh, the future of insurance. And these days, we want to thank you for coming in to tell us a little bit about an industry many of us don't know much about. So thank you, Susan.
3: Thank you. Thanks for
0: having me. And Richard Rudolph, author of A Tedious Brief History of Insurance, also former risk management consultant, joined us today from the studios of WXEL in Boynton Beach, Florida. Richard, thank you for your time.
2: Thank you, Lucy. Thanks very much.
0: Today's show produced by Jeff Tyson. Special thanks to Lydia Brown. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Learn more about the show at WMPR.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.